Okay, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's been the passage of our reflection now for a while, and midweek as well as Sunday morning services. I don't know if you've noticed, I notice it all the time, how immaculately clean this place always is. And that's because of there's gifts you see in action. There's gifts you don't see in action. And the reason that it's always immaculate here, and yes, I do want you to acknowledge her, but wait, hold off because this is a, there's a story here. It's due to the faithful co-laboring of Mrs. Lena Persinger. Now, the reason I say that today of all days is I found out through surreptitious and clandestine means that it's her birthday tomorrow. But there's an added twist. The clandestine means was another Mrs. Persinger, Mrs. Russell Persinger, whose birthday is today. So... Let's recognize both Mrs. Persingers. They're hiding out in the overflow room, so I want to hear some applause from the overflows as well as here. But really, really, every gift is equally important. The communication of the word is not as important or not more important than the other gifts, some of which are concealed and hidden. And I want you to know that, so... As a pastor, I have a mandate that's secreted away in Proverbs twenty-seven, twenty-three. It says, know the state of your flock. So, as Clint Eastwood said in The Line of Fire, I know things about people. <laughs> I also want to mention that we, we have postponed this communion service for some time. And the reason so that we could welcome into our midst our Mississippi group who are with us today. And maybe you come here to be encouraged. But when you come here, all of us are encouraged. And our, our mutual faith is exchanged, and we really appreciate you guys. In fact, let's recognize Mississippi again. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And you went whitewater rafting yesterday? You're crazy, all of you. They're all nuts. That's why you belong here. But we are having communion service, and the service will segue into a Eucharistic service today, the communion service. Everyone's welcome. All of you are welcome. Doesn't matter what church you attend. Doesn't matter if you attend church. Most of us are graced pagans. There's a few graced Jewish folks, but most of us are graced pagans. 1 Corinthians, in fact, now that you're in 15, I do want to hit 1 Corinthians 5, 7 again for a moment. We're still fanning out on the divine missions, and this is the fifth time we've hit it, so we're spending a good chunk of the summer on that wider subject, divine missions. And the first divine mission is that of God's Son, And that mission is described as the Christ event, which has seven elements to it, as we've shown. The incarnation being the first element. 
The second element being his life of vicarious obedience, perfect fidelity to the Father, and in essence, the fulfillment of covenant fidelity on behalf of Israel, on behalf of all humanity, on behalf of all creation, for all creation. The passage that we are aiming toward and is the center of our reflection is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four through 28. And there's going to be many reasons why I think you'll share with me an enthusiasm over this verse is one of the most important in all of the Pauline writings. It certainly reaches out further and offers a wider horizon than any other passage, perhaps in all the scripture. Now, we have been studying the seven elements. The last element is the enthronement. And the word in the book of Revelation that we see 28 times, it's in there 29 times, but 28 times it describes the lamb, Arneon. Arneon is a little lamb, literally. We see that 28 times in Revelation. Paul never has that word anywhere in any of his epistles, the word Arneon, lamb. He does have another one called Pascha, and this is going to be relevant to our service today, our communion as well. Pascha, which means the Paschal Lamb. The whole book of Revelation is tuned into and fine-tuned into a the enthroned Lamb of God, that he is enthroned, that he is, his light enlightens the whole new creation, and that he has redeemed all of creation, and through him a new creation is made and being made even now. So, again, Paul doesn't use that word. Instead, he uses, in fact, the word to pascha, hamon, our paschal lamb. And for that, just turn briefly to 1 Corinthians 5, 7 again. It says, clean out the old yeast. And this, of course, means to put off the Adamic ontology. That you may be a new batch of dough. Now, he carries this on through to 1 Corinthians 10, that you being many are one bread. He takes that bread into 1 Corinthians 11, into the bread that's represented by the incarnate Christ and by our participation with him and by the fact that he gave his flesh for the life of the world. The bread that came down from heaven is Jesus Christ. He said, this bread is my flesh, which is given for the life of the world, not for a few million Jewish folks in the ghetto of Goshen on the eve of their liberation from slavery in Egypt, but for all the world in a universal exodus, the flesh of the lamb was given. Clean out the old yeast that you may become a new batch of dough just as you are unleavened. Very strange here. Clean out the leaven just as you are unleavened. You're already that by the grace of God. You are already unleavened. Why? For our paschal lamb, to pascha hemon, has been slaughtered. That is Christ. Christ is found in the emphatic position in this sentence, the last word in the sentence, Christos, Christ. So, in all of Paul's epistles, 
We also have an enthroned lamb at the heart of his epistles. And that enthroned lamb is the lamb in John's gospel who takes away the sin of the world. The vision of the enthroned lamb on the throne of God is a vision of Jesus Christ in his universally redeeming significance, in his universal saving significance. And it is in the light of this vision that we do not perish. It's this vision without which God's people are perishing. Perishing, in that context, Proverbs twenty nine eighteen does not mean going to hell. It doesn't even mean what my father told me not to do when I went to the University of Vermont. Some of you young people are going to college, and my father gave me a one-sentence exclamatory piece of advice, which I forthwith went and disobeyed. He said, don't go to hell in a handbasket. So instead, I went on a grease pole. But anyways... Uh, That was his whole advice to me. But I understood what he meant, and it it spoke volumes. But so perishing doesn't mean going to hell in a handbasket or on a grease pole or any other way. It means to cast off the restraint of the Holy Spirit and to continue in the Adamic ontology and and a, a life that's still enslaved to sin, a life that's still enslaved to the flesh. So cleaning out the old leaven is putting off the old man, as Paul puts it elsewhere. Because Christ, our paschal lamb, has been slaughtered. At the heart of Revelation, we have, I saw a lamb that had been slaughtered, standing. He was standing in the midst of 24 presbyters. He was standing between the throne of God and the four living beings that represent all of created reality. And he ascends the steps to that throne as the action of revelation continues until finally, I see, John said, I saw from the throne of God and the Lamb a river, a crystal river of living water proceeding, which represents the second divine mission, the mission of God the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus also likened to a river of water that would come from the innermost being of Messiah or be sent by Jesus Christ, the second divine mission. That Christ was slaughtered, therefore, presupposes the reality of his incarnation or of his becoming flesh, John 1.14. It presupposes or takes as as a given fact His life in the flesh, in the days of his flesh, when he exercised perfect obedience and fidelity to God on our behalf. It was the flesh that he took on. It was the flesh of the slaughtered lamb that was to be eaten in Goshen in Exodus 12. Paul is alluding in 1 Corinthians 5-7 to Exodus 12, as Jesus is in John 6 When he says his flesh, he's referring specifically to his flesh as the lamb. For the behold, the lamb of God found in John 129 and 136 goes all the way through John's gospel. It goes through him saying it is finished, crucified on the cross. It goes through him being buried, resurrected and standing in the midst of the 12 as he stands in the midst of the 24 and Revelation.
And so Jesus identifies himself as the antitype. Now, that doesn't say anti-type, but anti, A-N-T-E type. That means a fulfillment. He is the fulfillment of the representation of the Passover lamb found in Exodus 12. For we are to, the people in Goshen were told to roast the lamb and eat the lamb inside their house while the blood of the lamb adorned their doorposts and the lintels of their door so that when the angel of death passed by, he would pass over. And that's hence the Passover. It was on the last Passover of the old age that Jesus instituted the first Eucharist, which shows the coming of a second new age, the age of Messiah. So when we celebrate the Eucharist, we should be very aware that we are in the coming messianic age, which has already come with Christ. And so, the, again, the allusion is to Exodus 12 when the Jews in their ghetto called Goshen in Egypt were huddled in their homes. They ate the roasted lamb that was roasted with bitter herbs, which shows our participation with Christ in this life in his downward trajectory as well as his upward trajectory being especially anticipated. On the occasion of the, fir- of the first Passover in Exodus 12, the people who had been enslaved for 400 years to Egypt, which represents sin, death, the flesh, and principalities and powers, were on the very cusp and verge of being emancipated and radically liberated by a divine enactment of deliverance. And so that's what's being referred to here. Our Paschal lamb has been slaughtered, even Christ. What a radical, glorious fulfillment. So the last word in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 is Christos, Christ. It is in an emphatic position in the sentence, identifying Jesus as our Passover lamb who has been killed. We could say killed is one word. That means what that Greek word means. Sacrificed is another slaughtered. Once again, the allusion being to Exodus 12, where the word Pascha is used four times. Exodus 12, the celebration of the Passover previous to the divine liberation of the Jews from slavery to Egypt, which typifies... Listen carefully. What it typifies is a universal exodus of humanity from slavery to sin, death, and the flesh. A universal exodus of creation from slavery to corruption. Romans eight nineteen to 23. And a liberation of history itself from a cycle of progress and decline. Something that we'll hit again. The the deliverance, Christ's redemptive death and resurrection ultimately redeems history itself from its long cycles of progress and decline. Just like nature undergoes a death each year and then a rebirth, death and rebirth, a cycle is a cycle of slavery to corruption. So history goes through progress and decline. 
progress and decline, disaster, catastrophe, prosperity. It goes into this. But when Christ redeems it, redeems history, then history itself and time itself will be redeemed, as well as all the things in the past that have hurt us or in which we have hurt others, gone, redeemed, forgiven, cleansed. So 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, he, our Paschal Lamb, who has been slaughtered, we could jump right over to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five, because Christ is being referred to here, must reign until he, that's the Father, an allusion to Psalm 110, 1, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. So we could go right from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, must reign in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until all his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet, the last enemy being death. And of course the last enemy to be abolished is death. The poetry here is dramatic. The lamb who was killed now has death under his feet, under his nail-scarred feet. And why not? Was not his flesh by his incarnation given as the life of the world in John 6:51? Death is abolished in all the world because our Passover lamb has been killed and raised again to life. And in Romans 5:17, we are to reign in life by him. Now, speaking of the very passage that we're regarding as a passage of our reflection, and I think this goes to the most important text that I'm hitting in Better Call Paul. This is the most important text that I'm hitting in Better Call Paul because of its significance. And I want to show you these things. Please don't regard quotes that I give from theologians as something academic or not necessary. They are both necessary and spirit-directed. I find in my study of the Holy Spirit directing me toward certain findings of theologians just as he directs me to the Scriptures because they complement an exposition of the Scripture in some cases. So I'm going to quote a couple of things today. The reason that this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, which we're approaching in its context, is most important, is found in one passage by Kasemann, Ernst Kasemann, the teacher of Jürgen Moltmann, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, had a teacher, his name was Kasemann. I'm reading Kasemann's commentary on Romans. He says about 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, quote, this text is to be regarded as a key passage for the whole of Paul's doctrine of justification, since it lays bare the connection of this doctrine with apocalyptic and explains its cosmic dimension. This is one thing that the scripture is being freed from the old Reformation strictures in which justification is only seen as an individual thing. 
rather than a cosmic or universal thing. The, a cosmic universal deliverance effected in Christ. That limits so much the all-powerful grace of God. And we're being liberated from that old thought now, thankfully. The cosmic dimension of the deliverance of God is famously called, and I hope you remember this word, apocatastasis. Remember that? Apocatastasis. In the Greek text, it comes, it, the word is added to it, pantone. The restoration of everything without exception, apocatastasis. Now, here's another layer of what I'm teaching today. The apocatastasis is the cosmic dimension of the deliverance of God. And though this word is found only in Acts 3.21, only in Acts, and that's 3.21, and not in Paul anywhere, it's very interesting It was Paul who was recognized as the primary proclaimer of that doctrine, which is a doctrine of what is called eschatological universalism, which I prefer to call Christological universalism because God is going to summarize all things in Christ. God intends to recapitulate everything without exception in Christ. In Ephesians, he ascended, as we've seen. Having descended first, he ascended so that he could fill up everything with himself. And so it is a Christological universalism that Paul proclaims, and he proclaims it throughout. So though the word apocatastasis, pantone, is found in the mouth of Peter in Acts 3.21 and not in Paul, Paul was the one who was recognized as the primary exponent of that doctrine of eschatological universalism by the so-called church fathers whom I prefer to call patristic theologians. From the time of the New Testament all the way up to the 9th century A.D., a man named Ariogena, which is John Scott, his name was John Scott, or John the Scott, Ariogena, in 877 A.D. All the proper theologians, the theologians that I recognize as having a proper perspective on the New Testament, recognize Paul as the primary proponent of apocatastasis, even though he never used the word. Again, I woke up at 5 o'clock with this on my mind this morning. So, again, another quote on page 817 of Hilaria Ramelli's book, which I find to be one of the most important books ever written in the church age, The Christian Doctrine of Apocatastasis, which means restoration, in which she writes in her concluding chapter, she wrote this under the title of By way of conclusion, the main features of the Christian apocatastasis theory from the New Testament to Ariagena and its theological significance. Long title, but this is what she says. The doctrine of apocatastasis as found from the New Testament to Ariagena in many Christian texts and patristic authors is a Christian doctrine and is rooted in Christ. That ought to be emphatically known. The doctrine of a a universal restoration, a Christological universalism, is a strictly Christian doctrine. And I'll go so far as to say that doctrines that are against this are not Christian doctrines. They are not Christian doctrines. 
A Christian doctrine that foresees a division of humanity into damned and justified is not a Christian doctrine. It does not square with the interpretation of John 5, 28 and 29 that doers of evil are raised to condemnation. They are not. They are raised to an acquittal and to a transformation by grace. And so it's important that we understand this. We should not be shy about a true Christian doctrine just because it's not popularly held today. But we should be gracious about it. We should not be browbeaters of other people. We should be, in fact, I hold this doctrine quite quietly in my life until I get into the pulpit. Otherwise, I'm not really into beating a drum about it anywhere. Unless somebody asks. The Christological characterization, she says, is especially evident in Bardason, Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Evagrius, and Ariagena. Indeed, she says, the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis is based on the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. There's three of the features of the Christ event. And on God's being the supreme good. It is also founded upon God's grace, which shall bestow mercy upon all. That, of course, is an allusion to Romans 11.32, which may be the climactic verse in Romans. And the divine will, she says, which these patristic authors saw as revealed in Scripture, that all humans be saved and reach the knowledge of the truth. That, of course, is an allusion to 1 Timothy 2.4. They also considered it to be revealed, and this is the point I really want to make for BCP, better call Paul. They also considered it to be revealed in Scripture, and in particular, in a prophecy by St. Paul, that in the telos, which is the word that we find in 1 Corinthians 15.24, the telos, when all the powers of evil and death will be annihilated and all the enemies will submit, and for Origen and his followers, in a voluntary submission, and God will be all in all. That's the word that stretches further forward than any other. That's where I hang my hope. My hope is anchored in that extreme of eschatology. Now, I'm building this slowly here. This takes us to the passage of our present consideration. I said, well, if I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 24, 15, 24 to 28, which is regarded as Paul's central statement of, really, of salvation, of the divine deliverance enacted for all, then I'm going to have to look at the context. And so I went back to 15... 20, then I went back to 1519, then 1517, then went to 151. So if you're interested, there is an exegesis of 1 Corinthians 15:1 and following from our previous messages. You can get them on double speed if you want, and that will prevent you from the horror of listening to me for an entire hour. So right now, 1 Corinthians 15, both of our themes are dovetailing at this point. One is the divine missions from Sunday morning, and the other is what I call the one resurrection. And that's another important feature, one resurrection. 
And this is a quote that is particularly notable for our purposes. First, in that the doctrine of apocatastasis is based on the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. Divine mission number one, features of the Christ event. And it can be argued pretty convincingly that all the features of the Christ event are saving in their effect, including the incarnation itself. It's a saving act of God which can be demonstrated, and we will do that as we fan out more and more. This includes the incarnation, therefore, as being saving in its effect, universally saving in its effect. Because when the eternal word became flesh, in John 1.14, God entered created materiality in general. God cannot enter created materiality without altering it radically all of it it's impossible for god to enter into created reality which he calls flesh there without altering the totality of created reality and in a redemptive way it's impossible that's a principle you can chalk it up as a quote of me because i just invented it just now but not only did god enter created materiality in general in the incarnation of Christ, John followed up in 116 of John with the declaration that we have all benefited from his fullness. That is, from the fullness of his divinity and humanity together. Added to that, the incarnate word was said to be full of grace and truth, which indicates that it is the fidelity of God in Christ to his covenant, not only to Abraham, but to all flesh. When he became flesh, he was fulfilling the covenant of God to all flesh, as Genesis 9 teaches. So then, the incarnation itself is part of the basis of the Christian doctrine of universal restoration. And that explains, at least in part, Thomas Torrance's testimony when he was asked, when were you saved? He said, when Christ was born of the Virgin." And he's correct to say that because all of the seven events that make up the Christ event are saving in their impact. And they hang together integrally and inextricably together. So I don't find that an odd statement. Second, this quote is applicable to our present study, Better Call Paul, and specifically 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, because the doctrine of apocatastasis as appropriated by these patristic theologians was, again, they saw it all the way for 700, 800 years. They saw it as a particularly Pauline doctrine, even though the word was uttered by Peter, and Peter said that God spoke about it through the mouth of all the prophets, univocally, one message through all the prophets, apocatastasis. Though the word is found only in Acts, the concept is developed better and most thoroughly in Paul. Now, again, I'm moving slowly. The passage in question, which we're considering contextually, beginning with 1 Corinthians 15, 1, has also riveted the attentiveness of modern theologians. So there is a recovery of the understanding of Paul by the patristic theologians that I think is even destined to go further than their comprehension of it. 
Jürgen Moltmann, again, is one of the most notable. And more recently, one of his teachers, Ernst Kasemann, who wrote this. Listen carefully to this quote. This is going to figure prominently. If I ever do a book, I've got to put these quotes in it. Does the hope of general restoration, and he puts in parentheses, apocatastasis, Ernst Kasemann, 1980, does the hope of general restoration, apocatastasis, come to expression here, meaning 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, if we take seriously the word pantes, which is all without exception, in Romans 5:18b, and the inclusive hoi polloi, or many, of verse 19b. Certainly, believers are meant, he says here. Believers are meant, yet they alone are not mentioned, and nothing justifies the assumption that at the end only they remain for Paul. That's an insight that Cosman had. The parallels in 1 Corinthians 15.22, which we're going to get to on Wednesday, maybe, and particularly Romans 11.32 should not be overlooked. Common to all these passages, listen to this. This is really the point I'm making so far. Common to all these passages, and that being Romans 5.18 and 19, Romans 11.32, 1 Corinthians 15.24 to 28, and many others that we're going to look at. Common to all these passages is that all-powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological universalism. All-powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological universalism. I'd call it Christological universalism. God's all-powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological universalism. And then he goes on to say, the intention of the apostle is to present the universality of the reign of Christ in antithesis to the world of Adam. The world of Adam is the leaven that we are to put off to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread after the Passover sacrifice of our lamb. Then he goes on to say, in closing, new creation is proclaimed, and this points to the end, when as 1 Corinthians 15.28 puts it, God will be all in all. Now, Kazeman talked a lot about this passage, but he didn't exegete it too much. So that's going to be my job. All-powerful grace, he says, I would call unconditional and therefore ultimately irresistible grace is indeed unthinkable without eschatological universalism. So we, we bridge that gap already in our study of Better Call Paul. If God's grace is unconditional and all-powerful, then it has to be universal, ultimately. And we showed that in the scriptures, building a bridge between unconditional and universal grace. That if God's grace is unconditional, it has to be universal. Kazeman was saying the same thing in his celebrated 1980 Romans commentary, pointing to the passage of our present reflection, which is 1 Corinthians 15, where we're hunkered down, He's pretty forceful in saying all-powerful grace is unthinkable without eschatological or final universalism. Moreover, he says this powerful conclusion is common to all these passages. Now, here's where we come in. This is where the hard work starts. This is where we go from the katas and the forms to the sparring with the texts. As has been our habit, We're not content to rest on the conclusions of theologians.
no matter how bright they have shown in their field, we do not rest on their insights. There's a brighter light still. And it's the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, revealing the knowledge of the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that is to shine into our hearts. That light shines forth in the scriptures. The fulfilled Torah of freedom, as James 1.25 calls it. The Torah of Messiah's fidelity, as Romans 3.27 calls it. And so it's our custom to gaze into the scriptures and to engage with the texts from which these conclusions have been reached to see if we reach the same conclusions. And I love to approach the scriptures and with the prayer that I pray for the Holy Spirit to direct me, I say, show me where I'm wrong because I got to communicate these things and the responsibility for doing so is overwhelming. So show me if I'm wrong on some of my conclusions. So it's our custom to do this. We engage in a close quarters engagement with the text and the context. Now on Thursday, and you can get Wednesday and Thursday, either in normal speed or two times to catch up easily. Resurrection and that the individual bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Listen to this. The individual bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead cannot be disconnected from the universal bodily resurrection of all humankind to life. There is no disconnect between those two things. If Jesus wasn't raised, then we're all, we've all had it. Our, our hope is empty. My preaching is vain. It's stupid. I picked the wrong vocation. I didn't pick it as a vocation. God picked me because he has a sense of humor. I know that I've occasioned laughter in heaven. God called him. <laughs> now, it happens every Sunday. They laugh like crazy up there. But notice this. Here's the text. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. Again, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of all humankind cannot be disengaged. They are one resurrection, despite the fact that Revelation talks about a first resurrection. It's not contradicting this because there is in the one resurrection a series of classifications of the resurrected, but it's one resurrection. Watch this. There's our translation of 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now, if Christ is preached as resurrected from the dead, and that word preached means authoritatively proclaimed, in the power of the Holy Spirit, not just preached, but authoritatively proclaimed with the law and the prophets and the writings and the Psalms supporting it with eyewitness support. If he says Christ is preached as resurrected from the dead, how can some of you say, and they were saying it, there is no resurrection of the dead meaning there's not going to be a future general resurrection of all of humankind from the dead. It's not going to happen. 
And they believe this because of Epicurean influence. They believe this because of Gnostic influence. They believe this because evil communications corrupt good doctrine, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. But Paul says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Why? Because you can't separate the future universal resurrection of all humankind from the individual resurrection of Jesus who embodies all of humankind. You can't accept it's one resurrection. So when John goes to, to look into the empty tomb, he sees two sets of clothing, a headpiece folded up, a body piece folded up. The head has risen and it's just as sure that the body will follow. When I got out of bed this morning, my head went first. And the body followed after some time. After all, I'm over 40 now, just barely. No, I sprung, sprung out of one resurrection, one awakening. Now, verse 14, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our preaching is empty and your faith is vain. Moreover, we would be found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified about God that he resurrected the Christ whom he did not raise. If indeed the dead are not resurrected, then he hammers it again in verse 16. If there is no, and the mirror Bible puts this correctly, no universal resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been resurrected. Some strong reasoning here. He does not separate the two resurrections. If Christ was raised from the dead, then there's going to be a general resurrection. And by general resurrection, I mean to life, because he will teach us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, which we're not going to get to till midweek, as in Adam, all die, because Adam is a bearer, a bearer of the destiny of all of humankind, all die in Adam. So, in Christ, who is the bearer of the human destiny, of humans, humanity's destiny, all will be made alive. There is no resurrection to damnation like Augustine taught it because he was too ridiculously off base because he hated the Greek language. And so he went into the language of the Latin Vulgate, and he never understood the word aeonios ever. And he always thought that there was, and he taught, as did others, the resurrection is unto damnation for some because they misunderstood the word crisis or judgment in John 5, 28 and 29. They misunderstood the word aeonios colossus as being a momentary disciplinary action for the good of the sufferer of it and, it, and turned it into eternal punishment. This has been one of the elephants sitting on the chest of the church for centuries. It's time to make him get off. Instead of making the elephant get off our chests, I've used a 470 double barrel. Not to shoot the elephant, but to shoot right next to the elephant so he gets off your chest. Now, I can't do that for the whole church, but I can sure do it for this little flock. Then in verse 17, if Christ has not been resurrected, that means he's still dead. And he's still dead. Then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Because Paul taught that his death was his crucified body 
was a certificate of human guilt. And when he was nailed to the cross, so was our guilt, the certificate of guilt that was against us. And when he was raised from the dead, it was for our justification. If he's not raised and he's still dead, you're still in your sins, Paul says. He's pretty forceful here. And he goes a little step further to show the spiraling negative implications of the belief of some in Corinth that there's to be no bodily universal resurrection from the dead. In verse 18, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is your believing relatives, have simply perished. They're dead. Dead means dead, just like the Epicureans. Let us eat and drink and be happy. And let's listen to the island beats of the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, because tomorrow you're dead, and when you're dead, you're dead. Well, Paul said that's true if Christ isn't raised. And all your believing loved ones who have died, they've perished, they're just dead. Man, did they waste their life by putting off the old leaven. They should have engaged the old leaven, at least had a lot more fun before they died, because to be dead is dead. Again, the Mirror Bible is extraordinarily helpful here in grasping the sense and the intent of Paul. He translates, Francois de Troyes translates 1518 this way, or at least comments on this. No resurrection implies no hope for anyone beyond the grave. It makes no difference whether you believed that you were included in Christ's death or not. So believers and unbelievers are dead in the water. They're dead and dead and that's it. If Christ is not raised in verse 19, if in this life alone, we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all people. More pitiable than the atheist, more pitiable than the agnostics, more pitiable than followers of world radical religions of violence. We're more pitiable than all of them. If our faith and our confidence is only in this life. Paul is still making the case against no resurrection and therefore for resurrection by inextricably uniting the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in history, A.D. 30, with the inevitable, unstoppable bodily resurrection of all of humankind in the future. It's so sure that that's going to happen because it's based in a, in a happening that's happened already. If one died for all, then all died. Therefore, when one rose, all effectively rose with him. There will be a bodily resurrection, as Jesus said. Those who have done good or embraced the gospel by a faith elicited by the Holy Spirit, for faith comes by the report, and the report is the message about. Christ in Romans 10 17 you get all these things about if you believe in your heart this will happen if you believe in your heart you'll it'll be unto righteousness if you believe that God raised him from the dead and he quotes a lot of these things from the Old Testament but then Paul says yeah but all that faith is elicited by the message itself so those that have done good are the ones that have embraced the gospel in this life put off the old Adamic ontology those who have done evil they have not embraced that they have departed from God with an evil heart of unbelief will be raised to acquittal in the bodily resurrection and they'll have to wait until then and their punishment will be as Jürgen Moltmann said a transformation by the grace of God the all powerful grace of God. So you can take an evildoer 
and you can do what judicial systems do. You can cruelly punish, you can imprison for a long period of time, or you can kill them. Or if you're God, you can change them into something they weren't before. You can transform them into something incapable of the evil they once did. You can bring them into a conformity with Jesus Christ, his son. God chooses the latter and goes a little further than human justice can go. Because God is love. Now we're ready to move to the communion, but here's the last verse I want to hit today. Paul is still making the case against the case for no resurrection. He says in verse 20, but now Christ has been resurrected. Our Paschal lamb has been killed and he is Christ. Now Christ has been resurrected. The Paschal lamb has been resurrected from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for died. Jesus fixed that idea when his disciples, he kept saying, this young girl's asleep, she's asleep, she's fallen asleep. And his disciples said, what do you mean she's asleep? And he said, I mean she's dead. And I'm going to wake her up. There's only one person that can wake up people from the sleep of death. And that's the one who's risen. Why the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? This title alone implies that a universal resurrection is inevitably going to follow because the first fruits is the first wave of a harvest that's universal. The very name first fruits of them who slept is an indicator that he is a, there is a universal resurrection unto life to follow. He is the first fruits. He arose to a life, the life of the coming age. He arose to this life which all will arise to. Christ, the first fruits of a universal harvest. In Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 1.5, both Rev the book and Paul in Colossians 1.8. And did, did Paul write Colossians? Of course he did. Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. The first fruits of them that slept and the firstborn from the dead, the same person. Two titles indicating pretty much the same thing. They explain one another. For those who have fallen asleep, of which Christ is the first fruits, are the same as the dead, of which Christ, the image of God, is the firstborn. I'll say that again. The first fruits and the firstborn are two sides of the same coin. They explain one another. For those who have fallen asleep of which Christ is the firstfruits, are the same as the dead, of which Christ is the firstborn. The resurrection of Jesus, as always, presupposes, and by that I mean takes as reality and fact his death and burial, which along with his resurrection are brought out in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 as basic features of the gospel that was handed down from Paul to the Corinthian saints. And his death and burial presuppose or take as a fact his incarnation and his life of vicarious obedience. Now, with this we're prepared to celebrate the Eucharist. All of this in one sense is a way to prepare for the celebration 
of the Eucharist, also known as communion. Now hold, and the ushers will take you to the elements shortly. The Eucharist is a commemoration of divine mission, number one. And it's only meaningful because of divine mission, two, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit who's been sent into our hearts by God the Father and by the Son can grant us the meaning of the first divine mission that we celebrate in communion. Remember my death, remember? Remember my death until I come. Again, and this is important to understand the Eucharist for future pastors, future preachers. The Eucharist is a commemoration of divine mission one that is only meaningful to us because of the divine mission of the Holy Spirit, divine mission two. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul writes, for I passed along to you among the first things which you also received with favor that Christ died for our sins in fulfillment of the promise of the scriptures and that he was buried. And on the third day, as the scripture predicted, he rose from the dead. In the same vein, he writes in 1 Corinthians 11. You can turn there if you want because we're going right into the communion Starting at verse 23, Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. Remember, we started off with 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the unleavened bread. Let's partake of the feast or celebrate the unleavened bread feast which follows the Passover lamb. He gave, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. In John 6, 51, he said, my body, which is for the life of the world. Not just for you. This is propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's Paul's commentary. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man or a woman should examine himself or herself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink the cup. What's that mean? Examine yourself so that you partake of the feast or the Eucharist properly. You do what 1 Corinthians 5 said. This goes all the way back to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Clean out the old leaven in order to be a fresh batch of dough, just as you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. So let us celebrate the feast, and that includes the Eucharist, not with the old yeast, the Adamic ontology, and not with the leaven of ill will or maliciousness, but with purity and reality. And this goes back even further still 
to 1 Corinthians 1.9, and this is a verse that I cherish most a lot lately. God is faithful by whom you have been called into the fellowship of his son. And that means God is faithful by whom you have been called into participation with his son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we celebrate our participation with God's son, with his body, which is the flesh which he gave for the life of the world. We celebrate our participation with his death, for we have been baptized into his death in Romans 6, 8. And we carry around with us in our participation with his dying, the dying of the Lord Jesus all the time so that the life of Christ can also be manifested in our mortal bodies and ultimately in our immortal bodies forever. We celebrate our participation with him by remembering his death until he comes. And so we should be able today, more than ever, more than at any other time before in our life's history, in our history of this church, we should be able today more than ever to celebrate this Eucharist meaningfully and in reality because we've been grasping the meaning of the first divine mission, that of the Son. And we've been grasping the meaning of that mission only because of the second mission of the Holy Spirit to each one of us to guide us into the truth that is embodied in Jesus Christ. You have been saved. And it's by this message today and by this communion service that you will come even more into the fullness of the grasp of the knowledge of the truth that is in Christ Jesus as the Spirit illuminates us. So with that in mind, please follow the lead of our ushers, speaking of other gifts in the body, and receive the elements. We are saved today because God approves of his son. Our salvation is God's approval of Jesus Christ because God the Father approves of his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We have salvation. Our salvation is not because of our approval by God, but because God approves of his son for us. And we are accepted in the beloved. We are hid with Christ in God. When we celebrate today, as we take the bread, we are taking a commemoration, taking up a commemoration of the flesh which Jesus said is given for the life of the world. Just recall that today and partake of the bread. And as we partake of this cup, we have to remember that Jesus said, this is the cup of my blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant. He is the mediator between God and man and the only one. He's the mediator of the covenant, meaning that any covenant restrictions and any covenant requirements on the part of man have been filled and fulfilled by the man Christ Jesus on our behalf. His life of vicarious obedience for us culminated in death by crucifixion, 
which represented, is represented here by the cup. Let's drink the cup. Now, Father, we're mindful that we are at the imminent cusp of the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ and of a bodily resurrection in which every eye will see him, every knee will genuflect willingly, and that he will present to you, Father, the kingdom over which he has ruled, the creation he has redeemed, the humanity he has saved, the history he has redeemed. We anticipate that day, Father, when Jesus, who will have reigned until all his enemies are under his feet, will present himself and with himself all that he embodies so that you may be all in all. Father, we look so forward to that day, and we celebrate that with one more hymn on the way out. So please dispose of the cups to give Lena a break and carry on in fellowship once you hit the hall. So you're dismissed. Thank you for your attentiveness.